Happy hump day, bingers. This week, I have two amazing guests for you. She spent four years in prison for a crime that she didn't commit. And he's an author and a poet. They managed to squeeze in their wedding last year just before the world stopped turning. And in the midst of the pandemic, created a fascinating podcast. They are the creators and hosts of the Labyrinths podcast. Please welcome Christopher Robbins and Amanda Knox. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So how are the two of you? We're doing great. We're we're busy plugging away on on labyrinths and all of our other various projects that we do. Um, so I think that's the major thing. Also, we just got our second vaccination, so that's very oh, exciting. Congratulations! Yeah, uh, I just got my first one about two weeks ago. Awesome. All right, so you're close to the finish line. I'm, I'm going to be so super vaccinated. Uh, disclaimer: This is not health advice for anyone. But I had COVID <laughs> and then got Ooh. vaccinated. Yeah, I think you're supposed to do that still. I think yeah. you're you're definitely supposed to do that. Yeah, I'm going to have so many good antibodies. Everybody's going to be jealous of my antibodies. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's great because I think they're saying that, um, especially because of the variants and stuff, you definitely want to get vaccinated again. Yeah, so, so I live in Michigan and we are like that. Apparently, the um, we'll stop talking about COVID in just a second because that's all anybody talks about. But I know <laughs> Michigan has like that. Bad, bad case of that really like quick spreading variant, which is when my wife had it, I had it. Um, one of you know, my kids have all been quarantined. The schools are it's it's a mess. So now you guys are you guys are out west. Are you guys in California? Seattle, Seattle, Seattle. Yeah, we're Pacific okay. Northwesterners. Yep. Hometown. Yeah. I just assume anybody that's on West Coast time is from L.A. Uh, That's not a bad assumption to make. (laughs) We have also found that most people are, if they're over here, it's not because they're where we are. (laughs) Right. So Amanda, you're, I was reading, you're originally from Seattle, right? Is that how you ended up back there? Yeah, we're both from Seattle. So um, we both, uh, both of us grew up here, uh, were raised here. Um, and we live not far from where we were raised. So like my entire family's here, except for the family that I have that lives in Germany. So basically it's Seattle or Germany for me. And yeah, I think we both went pretty far afield for a while. I lived in the East coast for a number of years and kind of traveled the country for another number of years floating as a indigent bohemian. Uh, and then we both kind of wound up back here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want I want to I want to start there with getting into, so like everybody knows Amanda's story she's had a very boring life nothing exciting nothing to talk about <laughs> right um, totally <laughs> uh, but Chris, can I call you Chris or do you go by Chris yeah Chris is fine Chris I'm from the Midwest we shorten everything I tried going by Robert for a little while and I just wasn't mm. allowed to um, so I landed <laughs> on Bob but so so Chris tell us tell us about yourself like so you said from Seattle you were I heard the word bohemian. Who who is Chris, and how did like how did you end up here? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I was uh, grew up a 
video game and uh, role-playing nerd. Spent a lot of time in D&D and building computers and things like that. And I thought my destiny was to be a computer engineer. And I Wait, wait, wait. You skipped over the completely sexy part of you being a competitive computer gamer named Atrocity. (laughs) 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 You're way beyond nerdy. He just skipped over that. He he dropped out of college to like be a competitive gamer. (laughs) I went to school for for computer science, computer engineering, and I eventually got so invested in playing video games. I was playing competitively and traveling around the West Coast with with my clan and playing in leagues in a game called Counter-Strike. And Ended up dropping out of school because of that, um, but mostly because I had grown disenchanted with how much creative outlet computer science was giving me. I had imagined it, there would be a sort of greater creative exercise there. And I guess I didn't really know at that point how much I needed that in my life. Uh, so I took some time off and eventually finished school um, studying philosophy and English. And at that point, I decided. I wanted to be an academic, and I basically flipped a coin between getting a PhD in philosophy or uh, going to a master in fine arts for poetry. And I sat down with some professors and eventually decided poetry was what I wanted to devote my life to. So I um, applied to a bunch of poetry master's programs, ended up in Boston, graduated that program, and then I was like twenty, you know, six or something, and I was like, well, I guess I'm. A poet now? I'm supposed to just <laughs> go in the world and be a poet? Like I didn't know what to do. What so does, I went back what to does school a poet I, do? You know, yeah, nothing. They write poems. <laughs> There's no jobs, you know. <laughs> right. um, well, the answer to what a poet does in the current economy is they teach poetry. Yeah. If you can get so a position, <laughs> the career path is you teach other people poetry. It's a pyramid scheme. Because <laughs> I was just gonna say, a, it sounds like an yeah. MLM. You just keep yeah. more yeah. aspiring uh-huh. poets underneath you. Um, so I got a second master's degree in poetry. I moved to New York and then I taught English and poetry for a while in New York. I was teaching at Hunter College and I did that for a number of years as an adjunct, you know, looking at what the job market looked like and how rare tenure track positions were. And basically, if you want to like move up the academic career ladder, you end up having to move to parts of the country that are less desirable in certain ways, small towns in you know, in rural states. Like where I live, right? Yeah, I mean, if you want to live in, if you want to live in New York City, like the jobs yeah. are super scarce, right? Sure. If you're willing to move to Tennessee, you might get a, a tenure track position. But then, of course, you're far away from your family and the cultural things that brought you to a place like New York to begin with. Right. Um, so around 2010, I quit my teaching job. Um, that had been my main career for a decade at that point. I had taught ESL. I had lived in Korea for a spell teaching English, and I had taught, you know, freshman English and creative writing at the college level. Um, And then I discovered that there were artist fellowships and residencies that existed all around the world and all around the United States, and that I could apply for these things, show them a writing sample, tell them what project I wanted to work on, and then I could live for free on the dime of some charitable foundation who wanted to support the arts. And there were hundreds of these things, and they were competitive, and some of them were crappy, and some of them were fancy. Sometimes it's a place in Nebraska that has some old apartment building that they've converted into an artist residency, and you have to cook yourself in a tiny little kitchen. Sometimes it's a castle in upstate New York that has millions of dollars of endowment, and you 
eat dinner at a long mahogany table. Uh, or they deliver and, like yeah, your lunch. They drop baskets. your lunch off in a picnic <laughs> basket. So I discovered these places existed and I started applying to them. Were any of them like downtown Abbey? Did you ever have like a little bell system you could ring? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the few of the fancier places like Yaddo and McDowell, where I went, um, it is a little bit like that. They're, they literally drop your lunch off in a picnic basket at your little cabin. You eat dinner. They, you, in the morning, you can request whatever you want for breakfast. Get, get your eggs in a little egg cup, soft boiled, you know. And your only responsibility while there for a month or two months, whatever your stay is, is to work on the book that you've proposed to work on. But you're also having dinner every night alongside painters and sculptors and composers and other kinds of artists, which is really creatively stimulating. So I did that for about three and a half years, just floating around the country and the world and no permanent address, um, writing poetry and working on a novel. Was that like, was that during the exact period that I was in prison? Um, Did that line up kind of perfectly? No, actually, I went into the wind right about the time you got out of prison. Oh, okay. All right. right. Interesting. This is the first time this has come up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the timing uh, of all this. <laughs> well, I just like have this sort of like image in my mind of like, oh, while he was spending, you know, three and a half years, four years, like being an itinerant artist, I spent four years in prison. Right. <laughs> so well, like it didn't totally line up. You spent another up, but... four years on trial yes. while I was Yes, so I was on trial while yeah. you were living the I was in life. I was in grad school while she was in prison. Okay. Um, is more so how that lined up. So I did that for a number of years and it was great. I got a ton of writing done. I finished a novel and then I ended up selling that novel and I finally made some money from writing for the first time in my life. Um, and that enabled me to move back to Seattle and try to regain some stability because as fun as that life was, it was also a very unanchored life. And it meant that my five-year relationship I had uh, collapsed. I had no career stability, no geographical stability, no relationship stability. And I was feeling very depressed and verging on suicidal. I wrote a, I wrote an <laughs> entire collection of Sonnets all about suicide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting topic, yeah. but it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, if you're writing, if you're spending all of your time I at know. your artist colony writing about suicide, so, it's like, hmm. It's got to be on the red flag list. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, I kind of regained my footing. I was like, the, the one thing I can control is I can have some geographical stability. I can choose that. And I moved back to Seattle and decided to stop floating around the country. And it was shortly after that, actually that I sold a book and then I had some career stability for the first time in my life. And actually it was at the book launch event for that first novel that I met Amanda. Yep. Um, who was writing for the local paper, doing arts correspondence, writing book reviews and, you know, covering local plays and things like that. So she showed up at the book launch event at Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle and I didn't know a thing about her, really. I had, being from Seattle, you know, you couldn't escape the whisperings on Facebook, but that wasn't my world or interest at all. So, you know, I did not follow true crime things. I, I did not follow the case. I heard something about some girl from Seattle in Italy. I thought maybe someone had been pushed out of a window. I had, I didn't know anything. 
I just knew that people knew who this person was. And when she came into my book launch event, I, they were whispering, look, it's Amanda. And I was yeah. like, okay, mm. uh, I'm busy right now. You know, this is my <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, and I was certainly not showing up to steal anybody's thunder. In fact, like at the time, it was very, very uncommon for me to ever show up anywhere public. And I sort of took a risk by even going to a public event because normally I was a very like behind the scenes journalist correspondence or correspondent. And it just happened to be the sort of serendipitous, like I had just finished reading and reviewing his novel and submitted it to the paper that I noticed that there was like a poster in the diner window across the street from my apartment building advertising this book reading at my local bookstore. And I was just like, ah, well, all right. I never go out into public, but like maybe I'll just go and check out this book reading. And then, of course, as soon as I get there, everyone's like, and that's my life. So. <laughs> Interesting, because I, I, um, for those of you that don't know, Amanda and Chris got married what just just over a year ago now. Yeah, yep. right before the pandemic closed everything down. So we got lucky that we were actually able to have our wedding. But of course, a few guests were like, "I don't know if I should come because apparently right. there was a pandemic," and we were like, "What's a pandemic?" Right? <laughs> Isn't it crazy what a year can make. Because you said it was leap year, yeah. right? Yeah. So Feb February twenty ninth last year, mm -hmm. and that was like right in that time where. People were, you know, like like something was happening, and it, but we weren't sure what it was, yeah. how serious it was. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like I was in that camp. I was like, look, it's the flu. It's going to be over in a couple of weeks. Like, right? relax, people. Yeah. Um, who knew? Yeah, we actually went on a work trip immediately after the wedding on like March seventh. Was our last time we flew anywhere down to New Mexico, or I think. Yeah, but even um, then, like it was like, oh, I guess we have to wear masks. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah it was bizarre. How dare they infringe on your civil liberties, right? <laughs> yeah, like I, I remember at the moment, like when we were at the airport and we were having to do the masks and like where, you know, the all of the sanitation and all of that. And I remember feeling like, God, this is feels like the end of the world. Like, what is going on here? And now and I felt like the sense of discomfort, like what? This just feels so off. And now. Like the idea of going into a public space that has so many people with not wearing masks now feels like, oh, my God, like, how do I do that? Oh, my. Ugh. So it's amazing. How do you find yourself watching by. TV or movies and see and like I keep finding myself like being like shocked when I watch a show and like there's a bunch of people like in a room together with no masks on. It's like my knee jerk reaction is like, hmm. how are they not wearing masks? How is this? Like, I forgot what the world <laughs> right? was like 12 months ago. I mean, I definitely feel. I mean, I've always, ever since I came home, I've always been a little bit claustrophobic about big spaces with lots of people in them. Um, so a little bit like there's a sense of validation and like, yeah, you know what? Don't push up against me. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Give me my space. <laughs> Let me breathe. Um, Introverts around the world were thrilled with the, <laughs> with the new social distancing regulations. Well, what's funny is I don't even consider myself necessarily an introvert. Like, um, I'm an extrovert. I love to go dancing. Like, um, Chris and I are swing dancers, so we like to go swing dancing. And it's one of the things that I, I miss about the real world pre-pandemic. But, like, with swing dancing, it's also a very sort of acknowledgement of you touching someone. What I don't like is when I'm forced into a situation where tons of people are touching me and... It's just kind of the way it is, <laughs> it's like instead of it being like a conscious acknowledgement.
were you, were you, did you have that issue prior to going to prison? I'm just curious because I've in, in getting to know um, Damian Eccles. Mm. He, since he's been on the outside, you know, and he lives in, in New York City right now, he's told me the same thing that he just, he just really doesn't, he can't stand being around crowds and a lot of people being around him. It really mm-hmm. amps up his anxiety. But that was kind of a post prison thing for him. Were you? It is a post prison thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is in large part because in prison, you sort of develop this instinctual, um, uh, <laughs> Everyone around you, like I before going to prison, I had never had the experience of everyone around you is a potential threat. And then like and then you spend four years or in Damien's case, 18 years in prison where everyone around you is a potential threat, not because like everyone around you is a horrible human being, but like people are suffering with mental illness and see people are suffering with PTSD. And there's just like a million ways that you are vulnerable to the fluxes of this like very negatively in charged environment and i'm i'm not like a fighter like if something was going to happen to me in prison i was going to be the one with my face in the toilet like there is no way like i even had a moment where someone was like picking a fight with me um in prison and i just like threw up my hands and i was like i'm not going to fight you i'm not going to fight you i'm not going to fight you um and like being in that kind of environment and feeling trapped like feeling always trapped um, has made me very, very claustrophobic around in spaces where I feel like I'm trapped and being surrounded by people makes me feel trapped. So I think that's probably similar to what Damien's talking has about. Has there been any improvement for that for you as, as time passes that you've been been out or is that just like this is Amanda's life now that, that I just don't like these situations? I mean, a few years ago, we went to... France and visited the palace at Versailles and the Hall of Mirrors in the summer with my brother and his family. And, you know, in the summer, it's huge crowds cramming into that building to go walk through the palace. And And they sardine you you through that thing. Like there is no personal space. um, Amanda couldn't do it. She, as soon as the, we were in the the crowd for about, once we like got in the doors for five minutes, she was like, I have to get out of here. And she spent the whole time wandering around the gardens outside while we kind of sardined our way through the crowds to check out the palace. And I think that was a wise decision for you. Um, mm-hmm. I was even happy. Yeah. Like, I was already starting to have a panic attack, just standing in line to get in. Yeah. So I had a similar experience, not the, not anything so fancy, but when I was, uh, my wife and I were having dinner with Damien and Lori time and he was telling us about it was in the fall and he was telling us about this amazing haunted house and there's all this stuff and it's really cool it's like 13 levels while we were in in the city we check it out and we're like well cool after dinner you guys want to go and he's like oh hell no i'm not going i'm not gonna go (laughs) (laughs) oh is he talking about sleep no more might be. I don't remember the name. Is it like multiple stories of like crazy haunted Yeah, house? it's like a theater event where you all sort of yeah. wear masks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's sleep no more. Yep. Yeah, that was it. And then, uh, but yeah, he wasn't, he, I think he he participated in it once and did similar to you where it backed himself out and wasn't going to participate. I want to circle back around to your guys uh, getting together. So I just caught that Chris said that when Amanda walked in, your reaction to Amanda was, I'm busy. But you're married now, <laughs> so that makes me think that Amanda must have seen stars and hearts flying off of you. How, how did you go from get away from me, I'm busy, to now you're married? 
Oh, well, it it wasn't like a, a love at first sight situation at, at all, because actually we, we you know we were both in different relationships at the time. Um, neither of us was looking for a relationship. If anything, what I saw was that there was this really awesome um, writing duo. Chris wrote this um, book with one of his very, very dear friends. And I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. I've never met co-authors before. I should interview them about their writing process for the paper. So I, I listened to their great you know, book reading, and then I asked them afterwards if they'd be willing to be interviewed about their writing process. Um, and that's you know, how I ended up again in a room with Chris where it wasn't with a crowd of people. And that was a great, like, great interview, great conversation. Um, we sort of were chatting about writing, and then that sort of devolved into drinking scotch and watching Star Trek and wandering around the neighborhood. And at the end of it all, Chris um, shook my hand. He was like, we should be friends. And, and that was like, uh, it, it was a really impactful moment for me. Because this was maybe a month after I had been fully exonerated. So I was like finally no longer being hunted down by the criminal justice system. And it was one of the first times that I realized that, oh, my God, I don't have to exist as this like prey animal that's forever looking behind me and like scared about. I can actually look in front of me and make new friends. Holy crap. So they were actually some of the first friends that I made post being totally exonerated. Um, and then we just sort of stayed in contact. Um, they went off and he wrote a whole other novel while I was like doing my thing. Yeah, and shortly after that, I went went to Detroit for a while to research the next book and I think came back from that research trip and it was around January of the um, 2016 or so that our life scenarios had both changed and we found ourselves near each other and things got a little more intimate. From my perspective, you know, I, I just thought she was a cool person after that interview. I didn't know anything about the case still, and I decided to keep it that way for a while. No Googling. And Never Googled Amanda no Knox Googled. during the process? No, did not. And of course, everyone I knew who knew way more about it than I did, and they would all ask me questions. Oh my God, you're hanging out with Foxy Noxy. And I'm like, I don't think she wants to be called that. You don't still call her that, do you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was like, look, I'm not, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. She seemed like a kind person to me. I want to meet her on her own terms and see her human to human, face to face. And I think it was a really important decision I made because. It allowed us to get to know each other without the lens of the media scandal and the trial and all that global phenomenon interposed between us. Um, eventually, I, sometime around late 2016, when the Netflix documentary was coming out. And we were by then dating yeah. and, you know. She had read my book. I had never read her book, you know. <laughs> um, and I was like, She's okay, like, my well. My wife has never listened to my podcast. It hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, it's, that's not fair. I need to know about this, you know. Right. This is a, still a big part of her life. I should become aware of it. So the first thing I did was read her book. And then, you know, I, I obviously um, was watching rough cuts of the documentary with the filmmakers and things like that. and. 
Um, and then I went down the rabbit hole of engaging with the never-ending stream of trolls online who continually harass her and thought for a moment that maybe I was sharp enough to become a troll whisperer and find a way to convince them of her innocence. And How, Did that work for you at all? Because I've been trying that for, for years uh, no, and I've it doesn't yet work. to change the mind of a troll. Yeah, they don't, they're not convinced by reason, right? right? They didn't arrive at their conclusions from reason, so you can't reason them out of their conclusions, you know? Uh, the only thing that might work, be the, the reason they arrived at the place they're at is an emotional reason. So the only way to get them out of there is to expose them to a different emotional truth, which would mean some kind of interpersonal, warm interaction with the humanity of the person that they're vilifying, Amanda. Uh, but it's not worth our time and energy to arrange that, you know, human interaction with a person who calls her a psycho. And there's hundreds of them, you know, and at least a few a day send explicit mean messages. So it's block and move on is the only real sense. Well, and, and you're also dealing with an extreme level of cognitive dissonance that, that then tr transfers into some of the behaviors that I've seen. I've seen on a very small scale because I, I work wrongful conviction cases. So there's always the guilty crowd, right? That's that's doing this. Yeah. And it's like they're they're convinced they're right. No reason is going to. So then it turns into these like ad hominem, ugly attacks that just never never stop. But you know, for, for Amanda, for you, I think I I think I remember witnessing some Twitter exchange with you a few years ago, and I was gonna I was gonna ask you like what it, and it was something along the lines of, and I'm sure you may not remember this, or or maybe something happens to you all the time. But you had you had said something funny. And see, I, I I got the impression from your Twitter. That you're a woman who has a sense of humor, which I think that you're <laughs> allowed to have a sense of humor. But you'd whatever it was, you had said something funny or, or made some kind of joke, and then like people, I was like watching. People were like attacking you, like how dare you be funny after this has happened? Yeah. Is that, did, did I witness an anomaly, or is that something something you've had to deal with? People telling you how you should be behaving. Yeah, that is an ongoing process. Um, that is something that happens to me all the time um, to this day, uh, where what I've found is that because people have been exposed to me through uh, a, a serious thing, a serious crime that happened, a serious accusation, um, a very serious story, like I went through something incredibly tragic. And so in people's minds, I fit into a neat, tidy little tragedy box in their brains. And anytime I do something that isn't like it, basically what that means is anytime I do anything, it in their mind is always in conversation with what they expect from me, which is that I am either this tragic victim or this horrible psychopath. And anything I do must necessarily be in conversation or a comment upon um, this tragic event. And so what I'm constantly finding is that when I make jokes or make light about even, you know, this experience that I went through, um, people are constantly saying, well, how dare you because something tragic happened to Meredith. So you're not, you know, like you're not allowed to make any kind of jokes about it, um, even if it's just about your own experience, because you are constantly in comparison to your dead friend, basically. So you should just be grateful that you're alive um, and not and sort of either disappear or just be perfectly, you know, tragic all the time because it's a tragedy and therefore your life is a tragedy. Yeah, I think the biggest one in recent memory was 
there was two. There was one like there was a meme going around of me at 20 and people were posting pictures of themselves at 20 and Amanda posted a photo of herself on the plane to Perugia. Um, <laughs> yeah. smiling oblivious <laughs> like, yay, about what was going to happen in her life. And I think there was another one when you made some j- joke about how um, uh, that study abroad didn't go so well. Or yeah, something, right? yeah, you know, uh, whatever, like yeah. just some sort of cracked joke. And it's about- like people conflate her making a joke about her own experience with her making a joke about the tragedy that happened to Meredith, which is that Rudy Gaudet murdered her, right? So that's a horrible thing that Amanda has not ever once joked about. She has made jokes about her own wrongful conviction at the hands of the Italian justice system, um, which she's totally entitled to joke about. And I think it's kind of crazy that anyone would be upset that people would um, use humor to explore and um, interface with their own trauma. And people do it all the time. And I think it's actually very offensive that anyone would try to tell her that she can't use humor when talking about her own experience. But as she said, people have trouble separating those two things. And they think that even if she's innocent, somehow, I think a lot of people still think, oh, well, somehow you, there's something you know that you're not telling, you know? Or, or that somehow, like, because they can't really divorce what happened to, like, Meredith and me sort of always exist as like two sides of the same coin in a lot of people's minds. And so therefore, if I'm not just perfectly grateful to be alive and and utterly constantly reminding myself that like Meredith is dead and like even though I had nothing to do with that, like they still think, well, Amanda's constantly in conversation. Amanda's existence is in conversation with Meredith's non-existence. And I think that it's a unfair burden to put on me, yeah. frankly. So I just don't really accept it. And then some people get mad at me for not accepting that. And they'll say things like, you know, when we got engaged, yeah. <laughs> you know, the messages roll in. You know who's not, not going to get engaged ever? Meredith. And it's like, what an offensive thing to the Kircher family to say. What an offensive thing to say to Amanda, you know. But that's a... What can you can't do anything about that, but ignore and and live your best life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I admire you a lot, and I mean, I mean, obviously, there's there's there has to be there always is a group of people out there that that still believe that you actually had some involvement in in Meredith's mm-hmm. death, but sure. I, I feel like it seems like from what I, I've witnessed with social media with you, I mean, I admire you a lot for you like moving on with your life in the way that you have and been so productive in doing it but it, but god what a fight and it, and it actually is a good segue even though i'm not going to use it as a segue right now because there's something else i want to ask you first uh, but it's a great segue <laughs> had i wanted this to be the time when i segued into the case we're going to talk about today um cool. because there's a broader picture here right and, and and actually i mean i've been i've been devouring your guys's podcast i i hadn't uh, I hadn't listened to it uh, before like a week ago and then i started listening to it and that's when i when i reached out uh, to chris on twitter and then, you know, there's some, there's some really good, you know, the Labyrinths is the podcast. There's, there's some great true crime stuff, but then just the primates that poop or whatever that episode was titled. <laughs> Plato, the primate poops. Yeah. 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 Just fascinating. And, 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 and I think all that plays in because this case we're in, and we're going to talk about uh, um, Samantha Geimer and Roman Polanski. We're going to talk about that case, but 
with that case, you guys did such a, an incredible job of telling a story that I that really made me uncomfortable. Like I, I feel like it it made everybody it should make everyone uncomfortable and rethink the way we think and project on other people. Uh, but it's it's a, but then that other the other episode that was just about the you know the primates and just kind of looking at the country in general or the world in general is about how we tend to project onto other people how we think they should behave when we're not in their shoes. And that's what I've seen. It, it just seems like all this is kind of all happening like right now at the same time as I'm like reading all these different things, just kind of what some, like what I feel is going on in the world right now. And then with you and your social media, this case that it, a lot of it stems from that, that it's like how, how, and I've been guilty of it, but how absurd and arrogant to think that I should be the one to dictate how you behave through your tragedy. Mhm. Yeah. I mean it's it's um I think that one person might look at Labyrinths our podcast and say like what do all these stories have to do with each other? Um and I do think that just by virtue of me being a huge role in shaping the stories of these different how these stories come together is really from that place of like wow, are we just treating other human beings like characters in these morality plays that we we sort of project onto the world um, instead of allowing human beings to be the flawed, complicated, interesting things that they are. And I'm trying to give space to people being basically I'm trying to like build bridges between what seem like really, really different kinds of experiences that people's have, you know, like what. Tim Urban is doing when analyzing what's going on with the politics of our nation. He's thinking about how human beings are projecting onto each other and expecting things of each other. And and on a different way, like Samantha Geimer lived that firsthand. And and the reason I ended up talking to her was not because I necessarily reached out to her. It's because she reached out to me and said, hey, girl, like, I know this happened to you. This happened to me in the 70s. And I was 13. And I was like, tell me about it. Yeah, it, it's crazy, and the, and I want to get get into her case, but I, I just I really wanted to I didn't even know what what how to format this, but to pick your brain for a moment, you said something recently that I also just recently wrote into an episode of Truth and Justice. The case I'm working on right now is a 15 year old girl who I believe was wrongfully convicted due to, of course, false confession. And as I was doing the statement analysis and breaking down point by point the police report, what he says he's saying, and then what. She actually says in the in the in her statement, I just wrote into a script and it was hours before I got in a car and listened to you say these same words. But I, I that it's like the ultimate form of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's weird because I, I'm I'm reading the testimony of a detective who's explaining to a jury how skilled he was in getting this 15 year old girl to confess to this murder by. Every time she says, okay, this is the truth, and he, she tells him her truth, and he responds with, that's impossible, there's no way that can be true, that's ridiculous, that can't be true, so now tell me what is true. And then she would, okay, right. fine, now I'll tell you the truth. And now, and it was like, he, yeah. like, it's just gaslight, it's a mind fuck, especially for a 15-year-old. But I was wondering if you could yep. e- expand upon a little bit about in your circumstance, I mean, I know you went through interrogations and things, but like, what, what, what did you mean when you say when you say that like a wrongful conviction is like the ultimate form of gaslighting? 
Oh, well, um, <laughs> it's the ultimate form of gaslighting because you are actively being punished for a crime you didn't commit. And everyone is treating you. The entire world is treating you like you deserve that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like not only do you not deserve that, but the whole world is treating you and telling you that you do deserve that. So here you are feeling like an utter crazy person to be the lone person in the world who knows that not only is that not true, but you don't deserve it. Like right. you're you're not you didn't just you didn't just not do the thing. You're also not a monster. So you don't like it. This ultimate form and like the million ways that you're gaslit in the process of being turned into the monster that you're not is gaslighting. So like you said, in the interrogation room, like I look back on my interrogation as being the worst experience of my life, far worse than hearing a guilty verdict. Uh, because at that moment, I did not realize that I was sitting in a room with people who were systematically breaking me down in order to put me in a position of compromising myself when I like I literally was like, I'm here to help the cops. Like, why are they yelling at me? Why are they telling me that what I'm saying is wrong? Like, I don't understand. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Like, they wouldn't. They oh, and wouldn't. they're literally telling you, yeah. you have amnesia. You can't remember right. The thing you think you remember is not is, true. Is and your brain right. trying to protect you from the traumatic thing you witnessed? Tell us the traumatic thing you witnessed. Every step along the way, when describing the evidence, when during the trial, you know, for Amanda, years of trial, eight years of trial that she endured. All those hearings are, is also further gaslighting because you're hearing people tell you the thing that you know is true is not true. The th you know, like <laughs> that's, that's the essence of gaslighting. Like you know something to be true and as the innocent person in that scenario, you know you didn't do it. And so every time someone tells you, well, here's the fact, Here's, the, here's what this indicates. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't indicate that. Stop telling me I'm crazy, right? Yeah, and there's, there, has to be, there has to come a time where, well, I mean, we know that, you know, the, with you know, the Innocence Project stats, you know, 25% of DNA-proven wrongful convictions, the person confessed to something they didn't yeah. do. So it, it, it happens all the time. It's like, I just can't, I understand it so much more now than I did before I started doing this work. So I used to think, like, why would anyone ever confess to something they didn't do? But then, like, really trying to study the behavior and, and then put myself at, like, I don't like at, at some point, do you start thinking, okay, well, maybe I am crazy. Like, maybe they are yes, right. That is exactly what you think. Maybe I am crazy. Maybe what they're saying to me is true. Maybe I need to try to, um, like, literally, I was sitting there in the interrogation room going, they wouldn't be hitting me and screaming at me unless they really, really, you know, like, unless this was true. So I guess I have to try to remember something I don't remember now. And I, it's because I'm traumatized. Like, okay, I guess that's the only answer because they're only offering you one answer. Like the, what you told them, the truth is not what they're accepting. And you, as far as I, like one of the things that really bugs me out is when they say, well, you were free to leave at any time. And it's like, do not tell me I was free to leave at any time. You had the door closed. You guys were surrounding me. Like, I like you brought me there in the middle of the night. Like, where am I going to go? Yeah. Like, what am I going to like? I, <laughs> it's such a technicality that they use all the time with that. Well, she was I'm, the case I'm working right now. Same thing. Well, she wasn't in custody. She wasn't. Hit. Well, she was 15 in a police station behind a locked interrogation room door. I bet she didn't feel like yeah. she could get up and leave if she wanted to. Yeah. 
And exactly. I'm, and I'm sure you didn't make that clear to her all the time. Like if you don't, you can go anytime. In fact, you went out of your way to not make that clear. Right. So... I think what what really complicates all this is that the people who perpetrate, you know, false confessions and wrongful convictions by and large are doing so out of a desire to achieve what they think is justice. They are blinded by various overlapping cognitive biases. They are not malicious people attempting to put innocent people away. There are some cases where active frame jobs happen by police, but I don't think they are the standard. I think they are the exception. Um, And in fact, when the police do actively fake evidence, um, oftentimes it's because they have so firmly believed that this person is guilty that they're like, you know, we need to put him away. Even if I have to bend this rule here or fake this thing, this guy deserves it. And they truly believe that. They don't, I don't think those people are cackling, you know, saying, oh, let's put this no, innocent you're, person you're, away. You are so right. I think it's the same. I said, I, I think that a lot of wrongful convictions occur because the same re- for the same reason those trolls exist. It's cognitive dissonance. Yeah. It's, it's, it's I've, I, I've seen it in case after case after case where the initial investigators look at the evidence, develop a theory, a theory and then they're, and they're, they're certain that, that you, Amanda, must be the perpetrator. And so, yeah, they don't go into it to frame Amanda. They start out thinking that Amanda is actually guilty. And then as they continue to investigate and the evidence isn't fitting with that, that's when it's, it's, it's like they're, they've, they convince themselves that they can, they can slide off their moral compass a little bit and just bend the rules a little because I'm already sure she's guilty. Mm-hmm. So you ignore evidence that doesn't fit and right. you search out evidence that does fit and you twist it and magnify it in whatever way you can to make it fit. A lot of this, you know, the reason that we explored things like political tribalism in that one episode of Labyrinths is because these things are, they're, it's just the same story. It's just on a different scale. And a wrongful or conviction a subject, story yeah. is the individual human scale. And then on the society-wide scale, the breakdown of our civil politics is largely a result of this same thing, of our, the fact that we are, you know, rationalizing creatures more than rational creatures and that we have beliefs that are not arrived at through reason and that we harness our intellects to defend those beliefs rather than to more refine our conception of what is true. Um, And that leads people into their political tribal bubbles. And it also leads prosecutors and police into wrongfully convicting people. And it leads people to like be assholes to their girlfriends. Like it's (laughs) it's a thing that everyone does all the time. And the criminal justice system is no different. So, okay, now I'm going to use this opportunity to go ahead and make that segue into the case that we're going to talk about today. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it, it's not as good of a segue as it was 10 minutes ago, uh, but we're still talking about people and their perceptions of other people. Yes. So the, the case we're talking about, it was 1977, 13 uh, year old Samantha Geimer is, is raped by a uh, di- famous director filmmaker Roman Polanski. Can can you guys walk us through a little bit just the the beats of the the basic beats of the case and we'll talk about what happened to Samantha and how she changed her her feelings on the whole thing over the years following. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean super really uncomfortable case of uh basically child abuse um where This young girl who was an aspiring actress and model um, gets a gig where 
Roman Polanski says, hey, I'm going to vote. I'm going to photograph you for Vogue magazine. And it's her big break. So she's really excited. He does his creepy old man thing, which is he gets her alone and gets her to undress and get naked, gives her a bunch of alcohol and drugs and then rapes her and then drives her home to her parents. And it's a fucking like horrible thing that he did. Um, And it's like, let's not like equivocate about it. Like he straight up raped her. And I think that what's great about Samantha is that she's very unequivocal about it. Like this is this is exactly what happened. It wasn't the same thing as me walking to school one day and some stranger grabbing me and pulling me into the woods and and strangling me and raping me. Like it's not the same thing, but this is definitely rape. And I was taken advantage of and it was wrong. And she said in in, in her interview with you that Exactly what you just said, that in her mind, in her 13-year-old mind, she didn't feel like at that, at that time that it was rape because rape is what you just described, not some right. person that she knows. Yeah. But her mother, who was, I mean, God bless her mom, like takes a stand at the time and says, no, that's rape and immediately contacts the, contacts the police, uh, would you think this would be a pretty open and shut, pretty clear-cut case, but it didn't work out that way. No, it did not. Um, It did not work out that way because, of course, um, not only was this a situation of, you know, he he said, she said situation, but also we're looking at a situation where the prosecutor and the judge and everyone immediately recognized this was going to be a big media case. And so everyone's reputations were at stake with how this case was going to be dealt with. And they were willing to potentially throw a young girl under the bus (laughs) in order to make their claim about like, we're going to go after and pin Roman Polanski to the wall. From the beginning, Samantha Geimer was like, ugh, this horrible thing happened to me. um, But I, I just, I just want to move on. Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go into court and talk about how he, his, you know, he had raped me in the butt and like, this is what it felt like when, you know, like he, she didn't want to get into all the gory details. She didn't want to have to go on the stand and be cross-examined and do all of that. And her family was with her on that decision and they tried to do everything they could to avoid her having to go in front of cameras and have to relive all that trauma. Right. Because the judge allowed allowed cameras in the courtroom, which was unheard of in the 70s. Yeah. Yes. This was kind of the first wave of the televised trials to come. So I think it was a very reasonable thing for her to not want to have to go through all that. But the, the, the really interesting moral dilemma here happens when the authorities, the prosecutors and the judges uh, involved in this say, well, he did this illegal thing. You brought it to our attention. It's our responsibility to nail him for it. And that's going to require you testifying. It's like, okay, well, if I don't want to testify, then maybe we can do a plea deal. And the prosecutor did not want to do a plea deal. They had to beg her defense attorney and other people to try and make that happen. And a lot of the reason that 30 years later, a lot of people still feel like Polanski got off without being punished is because of the plea deal arrangement that Samantha's family fought to have happen. 
what it resulted in the the judge sentencing Polanski to a kind of a weird non-sentence of psychiatric evaluation uh, for a certain 90 days or something like that. And he was released mm-hmm. before the 90 days. So people are like, well, that's an oddly lenient, um, you know, it's an oddly lenient plea deal that also he ended up getting out of early for the magnitude of what he did. But ultimately, like this was the plea deal. So he did do the thing. Um, well, and then the judge who had sort of agreed to, you know, give him time served was kind of the, um, the agreement they had reached, changed the deal after the um, psychiatric eval ended. And they said, look, this guy is who's already Polanski, by the way, has a horrific early life is part of this story. Not only was he a Hollywood darling, everyone loved him, celebrated director, but, you know, es- escaping the Holocaust and, you know, parents murdered kind of thing. And then Sharon Tate, his wife and, murdered. And then Sharon Tate, his wife murdered by the Manson family, right? So mm-hmm. tragedy had, had really given this guy a, a raw deal his entire life. So people were, the people who released him from the psychiatric eval were also saying, this guy's endured so much already, et cetera. From Samantha's point of view, she was like, if you punish him, it doesn't fix me. It doesn't help heal me to punish him. So I'm not interested in you putting him in prison for a long time. It's not going to make me better. Especially when it requires her to go and do, you know, get on the stand and exactly. go through appeals and constantly have to tell her story in front of cameras over and over and over again Yes, when she wanted yeah. to put it behind her. So when the judge re- reneged on that deal, that's when Polanski hopped on a plane and fled the U.S. Um, and he is considered by later district attorneys to be a fugitive from justice. And over the past 30 years, they've tried to bring him back numerous times to face charges. And the really interesting moral question here is, what is the point of all this? Who is it for? It's not for Samantha. She doesn't, she has explicitly said, punishing him isn't going to heal me. And in fact, you guys spending the, the last 30 years of my life chasing after this person for this crime that he did against me has negatively impacted my life. So if anything, you're all doing this for you at my expense, and yeah. I'm the victim of the crime. In the <laughs> like, name is... of justice for the victim. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the media plays a big role in this because whenever there's new news about the case, the tabloid vans show up outside Samantha's house again, and her and her family and now her kids are forced to duck and cover from the paparazzi because the Polanski case is back in the news. And that's something that for 30 years she's had to deal with. Yeah, and it, it, it ends up putting us in this weird, you know, we're in this, this time of where like the, like the world is finally waking up to the, the, the fact that we should be believing victims with the, the, Me Too, the Me Too movement and punishing these men who, who are sexual, punishing anyone who has sexually assaulted anyone. And, it's, and, and, and there's all these, you know, the, the world is in the midst of this movement. And then here's, here's Samantha Geimer who's saying, like, now, like, no, I get, I get along okay with, with Roman now because she got what she said helped her heal which is for him to tell, to admit to her that what he did was wrong and apologize for it. And, and that helped her with her healing. And so now she's saying, just leave him alone. I'm okay. I'm okay. And then here's the world telling her, you know, it was, it was shocking to me. It, it was shocking and not shocking when she was explaining 
like the messages she gets from people, how how she's uh like she, she's a slap in the face to other rape victims, and she needs to be like like telling her, and, and that's how it always is, right? It's it's always it's always someone outside of a class that's or a group that is being persecuted, for lack of a better term, telling them how they should feel about it. I, I see it. I see it all the time. You know, any time if there's, it happens everywhere. It happens with the trolls. It happens with you. It happens all the time. But it just, it just, it's weird. The episode just, it made me think in a way that, like I said, it was uncomfortable to even consider the fact because I'm like, part of me is like, well, good for her that she's, she found a way to move on from this. She found a way to grow from this. And, but then the other part of me is like, but that son of a bitch. Did, <laughs> yeah you know it's yeah. like no no we need to get him like why are we not getting him it's just oh it's it, it was it was brilliantly put together in a, in a way that and that's what i'm really enjoying about labyrinths is is the both of you seem like you're very much out out of the box thinkers and i like to think of myself that way you know over even politically you know i've said on the show that i'm very i'm very um i'm staunchly independent politically because there was a time in my life when i was like I'm on this side and I am, I identify as this and all things this party does. And then I got a swing in my life. I'm like, no, those people suck. I'm on this side now. And then, <laughs> you, know, you know, like you people suck. These are the good guys. And then I realized, no, you people suck too. And now I'm like in the, like trying to like not look at things through these like partisan black and white binary lenses. And I think that's what you do in this episode. Sure as hell. It's a gut check for anybody to listen to it, to, you know, how does it make you feel? And what what do you think that Samantha should do? Is it okay for her to go through this in her own way? Or should we be telling her how to go through it? And and how much do her thoughts and feelings matter to a process of justice? And one of the ironies she points out is that if the victim statement that she was giving was nail him to the wall, then everybody would be saying, listen to the victim, listen to what the victim says. But as soon as she says, give him mercy, then they say, oh, step aside. What you say doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at we all. We have to do this for whatever other reason we concoct. Yeah. It really forces you to think about what the purpose of punishment is in general. You know, and, and are retribution and vengeance valid reasons for punishment? Because if you're not protecting the victim, if you're not protecting further victims, that's one of the legit, in our book, that's one of the legit reasons to punish somebody or to remove them from society, yeah. to, to keep society safe. If this person has demonstrated that they are a threat to other people in society, it's a good reason to remove them from society. Uh, heal the victim in whatever way you can. Whatever, however you can restore that victim to safety and health, take those actions. Is punishing this person going to heal them? Probably not. Is acknowledgement from that person going to heal them? Maybe. See if you can arrange that. But Throwing them away in, into a cell for a long time beyond, I mean, especially when Polanski's like 70, 80, how old is he? Is 86, now? I think. He's almost 90 years old, isn't he? Yeah, right? Yeah. It's like he's not a threat to anybody, obviously, right? So trying to punish him at this point isn't going to pr remove some threat from the world. That threat is long gone. Uh, the only thing it might do is be some symbolic gesture for deterrence, but you know, what, are the, what does the data show about deterrence? How does deterrence work? The data shows that the certainty of being caught is far more important than the severity of the punishment. We know that's true, right? So like the death penalty doesn't actually deter people. It's 
even if, even if a slap on the wrist is the punishment, it's the certainty of knowing you'll get that slap that deters people. Well, and then I think right. the other really uh, the big factor and the one in which um, Samantha showed an incredible amount of compassion and understanding for Roman Polanski that he didn't deserve, frankly, but like she did because she's a very smart, thoughtful person. Um, and she was like, look, they're only really going after him because of how famous he is, not because of like, you know, what it happened to me. Like, how many plea deals have they given to people who weren't famous? And, you know, regardless of how the, the, the victim felt, they're just trying to nail him because it looks good on their resume to be the ones who nailed Roman Polanski. And that is the other factor. And it, that's what uh, also complicates things is it's like, well, are you what again, what is this for? Is this for some sort of like vague sense of justice that you feel, but like the victim doesn't feel? And does how do like does the vic- how the victim feels matter? And like it, and when does it matter? Yeah. And what sort of things are influencing your perspective of what justice means? And is that being influenced by whether or not you're going to look really cool in the press when you win the case? Like, who? Uh? Yeah, politics <laughs> is is a big part of this, right? I mean, DAs and judges are elected. Right. And so if you could somehow have a system where it was going to be totally anonymous, the name of the prosecutor who prosecuted Polanski in this case would never be revealed the way that the jurors are anonymous, say, in the Chauvin trial recently, um, that would remove an incentive for the prosecutor because that Polanski conviction is no longer a help towards the next re-election campaign. It's not a notch right? on their belt. Um, whereas as if you can be the famous prosecutor who nailed Roman Polanski, it's really is going to help your law and order message that you don't let any crime go unpunished, et cetera. And I think the part that the haters of, of Samantha Geimer, I don't know if that's right to call them, but it feels like that way to me, the way she's describing the messages that she gets about this. I think they're missing the point. You know, so many sexual assaults go unreported, and a lot of it is because people don't want to go through the process of that. Tra- exactly what she didn't want to go through: the embarrassment, the you know, all the it's, it's so much, and so they they go unreported so often. And by her showing, you know, had this had this been let to go the way she wanted it to go, what she really showed people is that if the system works right, you can report them. They can, you can have some say in how justice is served to them and, and not have to go through all of that and move on with your life. But instead, when she tried to do it, it's not her fault that this has had, that this has a negative impact on other women who are sexually assaulted. It's the justice system because what they, they said is, no, you don't get to do that. If you're going to report them, then damn it, you're going to like like you're going to be punished too. If you're reporting them, you're going to get on the witness stand and you're going to. All or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's bullshit. She shouldn't be the one getting the hate. It should be the justice system in this case. There's also this impulse people have to say, well, he never really got punished. And it's like, well, you don't think having a lifetime reputational stain of being the rapist Roman Polanski is a form of really harmful punishment? It's huge. Imagine how you would feel if everyone knew you as the guy who raped a 13-year-old, right? Right. And and that they continue to stay in the news cycle for 30 years. Yeah, 
That's a terrible, terrible punishment. People's reputations and egos are so important to them. And to think that that doesn't count as a severe form of punishment, um, I think is, is really oblivious, honestly. But then the other, there's also, there's still the other, for me, there's still the other side of this, which is had Roman Polanski had the, you know, maybe they cut a plea deal for him to do five years or 10 years sure. or something that seems more reasonable as the punishment. Mm -hmm. Then maybe the, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world don't become, you know what I mean? Because, yeah, because they, totally. Because the other perspective of this is he's this rich, famous guy and he got off with less than a slap on the wrist. And then look right. how many other rich, famous mm -hmm. guys in that industry perpetrated the same crimes. But again, yep. I put the onus of that on, you know, I don't, I don't think that Samantha and her mom told the, the prosecutor that we want to make a plea deal where he does 40 days in a, in a, no. in a testing facility. <laughs> yeah. They said make a plea deal. So I don't have to. So I don't have to testify. Like yeah. that plea deal could have been a couple of years in prison or, you know, something. Yep. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it. It, it's it's we're, we're running short on time now, and it, and I want to make sure I direct people to go listen because this episode was this was like a big deal. It was it was nominated for a was a Webby. Yep, nominated yeah. for a Webby for best individual podcast episode. I think five five entries out of fourteen thousand entrants. So that's good. But we're up against the Dalai Lama and Kristen Bell. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling for you. But you know, Thank you. Whether, you know, whether you guys win the Webby or not, I think that it, it, the, the nomination certainly is, is deserving. It's a great episode. And so far, like I said, the and for you true crime bingers, there's a lot of true crime in there, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of other topics as well. So definitely check it out. Their names are Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. The podcast is called Labyrinths. Please check it out. I'm certain it's going to be your next true crime binge. Thank you guys so much for doing this. Thank you so much. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.